It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What's up? What's going on? Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. ThePeteCallenderShow.com. Click there to subscribe, and you can also become a patron by going to that website. There's a link at the top. You'll end up getting exclusive content like the live streams and the prep sheets uh, and the bumper stickers, among other things. And uh, folks like Marlene, Jenny and Sean, Rhonda, Susan, Mike, Linda Grace, Lisbeth, JF, Leslie, Jim, Lisa, WC, they all became patrons. Uh, and you can as well, again, go to thepetecalendarshow.com. So the creator of the 1619 Project, uh, she gets the lifetime appointment, the tenured gig at 180k a year, no chance of getting fired for anything she ever decides to do. I, I can't help but notice, by the way, um, many of the same people who spend a lot of time trying to get folks, for example, just to pick a random profession, oh, how about uh, talk radio, um, folks who try to get people in talk radio fired, you know, through advertiser boycotts or something like that, they're the same people who are out there demanding that Nicole Hannah-Jones get lifetime tenure at UNC's School of Journalism because she needs to be protected. That is the concept here behind the tenure. For a lot of folks who don't understand why uh, tenure exists, and I mean, I can, I, I am sympathetic to arguments on sort of both sides of this. Uh, one is that, uh, look, if you're going to be engaged in research or, um, I don't want to say experiments, but uh, yeah, I mean, you're going to be doing work at the uh, university level that might engender uh, some sort of negative backlash, you know, and, and it could, uh, you know, that could lead to pressure for the school to fire you. And this is meant to insulate you if you are doing work um, that could offend. And so that's the rationale for tenure is that it protects you from the whims of the public or the administration, uh, the media, you know, uh, political actors, whatever. It gives you some protection so you are free to pursue the academic work that needs to be done. That's the idea. Um, and I don't care about who gets tenure and who doesn't, especially in this case with Nicole Hannah-Jones, this tenured position. It's not taxpayer money. This is coming from... Uh, the was it the the Knight Foundation, which was the uh, newspaper publishing company that merged in right Knight Ritter. They were the owners of the Charlotte Observer for a while, right? Um, and so the you know I don't know where they got all of their money from. I don't know if it was made in publishing. Uh, I don't know if they were you know. I mean, I do find it kind of ironic that a you know a newspaper business that's or an industry that is you know circling the drain uh, revenue wise and <clears throat> has this kind of money to pay for these tenured posts but whatever and she's going to keep doing her job she still works at the new york times she still gets to keep doing that this is in addition this is like a side hustle kind of a thing a hundred eighty thousand dollars and you get a lifetime appointment and you basically can't get fired so the same people who are like she needs to have this job and you're a racist if you don't give it to her they're the same people that go after others for engaging in work that is 
you know, controversial. People say stuff. They're exploring different issues. You know, like when I do topics, I recognize going in, and this is one of them, I recognize going in that if I say something that can be misconstrued in any way, that it can be used against me and advertisers can be targeted and people can seek to destroy me for it. I have no tenure. I have no protection, right? So I'm not a sympathetic shoulder in these types of stories. And I've said this before, whenever I covered this tenured story with Nicole Hannah-Jones, I'm not, I'm not a shoulder for people to cry on on this because I find it to be just so divorced from most people's experience. And I find the level of hypocrisy so supreme that the people who lead these cancel culture mobs are demanding protection from cancel culture mobs. Like, I, I, I have little patience for it. But that being said, a lot of people are paying attention to this because this is the Edmund Pettus Bridge all over again. I mean, this is like turn the fire hoses and dogs onto the crowds of people that simply want to eat at a restaurant. Like, that's the level that we're at right here. Of course, it's not. But you know, in today's day and age, when there is so little to, I guess, be outraged over, like legitimately, we find these types of stories. <clears throat> and um, this is how the story by Drew Jackson and Jessica Banov with the McClatchy newspaper, Charlotte Observer, Raleigh News and Observer. I think the Durham Herald Sun is also in that. Um, the nation's eyes looked to Chapel Hill Wednesday and we were there. Look at us being part of history. I'm sorry, they, they didn't say that, but that, that is the vibe. <laughs> that is the vibe that so often comes across in media reports. It's one of the things I have, again, little patience for. And as a reporter, I I was up close and personal with this kind of stuff and the people who cover this stuff. And a lot of them, they're like, you know, this really is like getting close to the power. They're like, oh, this is awesome. And um, the UNC Chapel Hill Board of Trustees voted in a nine to four vote to grant tenure to journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones. She had planned to join the Hussman School of Journalism and Media today. Remember, she was offered a five-year contract as the Knight Chair in Race and Investigative Journalism. I suspect it was a position created specifically for her, but I don't know that to be true, but I would be willing to bet that it was. And uh, they gave her a five-year contract initially. She accepted it. And this was a 10-year track. So they said, we'll give you five years. And, you know, you've never been a professor. So we'll try you out five years. You're on the track. And, you know, if it works out, we'll give you tenure. But the school faced sharp criticism, according to McClatchy, for not granting tenure to the Pulitzer Prize and MacArthur Grant winner who had created the New York Times' 1619 project. She and her lawyers had said that she would not begin the job without tenure, as previous night chairs had. They had received this. So they say, well, she should get it too. Now, again, I don't know what all of their other qualifications were. I don't know how you make these comparisons. I don't know how you make these decisions. But um, Nicole Hannah-Jones is a different kind of a candidate. All right. And it's got nothing to do with her race. It's got nothing to do with her uh, gender. It's got nothing to do with her sexual orientation. It has everything to do with her work and her performance in the public square. And this argument, these arguments have been made. And there is a philosophical difference between the person who paid $25 million to put his name on the building and Nicole Hannah-Jones. 
And this gets into all sorts of questions about, you know, the mega donors that give all this money to the schools and the schools use this stuff uh, to hire people or to, you know, uh, build new facilities or whatever. And they make these massive donations to put their names on the building. And are we to believe that they don't ever expect there to be some consideration paid? Now, Hussman, Walter Hussman, he has been an opponent of Nicole Hannah-Jones's tenure. He's raised questions, I should say. And when he raised questions, everybody pumped the brakes and they said, okay, let's just do five-year contract. That's the idea here, is that he was the one who raised these questions. He's not the only one, by the way, who has these questions, but he raised them because he is of the school. He's sort of an old-school publisher, but he's a conservative as well. Precisely, precisely. And so uh, this is obviously all about politics, but he's an old school guy and he's like, you know, they're, you know re- uh, reporters and journalists should be um, objective and, and fair and uh, they should not be part of the story. And he's against this sort of activist narrative journalism that Nicole Hannah Smith uh, uh, participates in and employs. And so is it right for him to question, and I've covered this before in previous shows, is it right for him to question this idea that, wait a minute, I am funding this school because these are the principles of journalism I'm trying to you know, inculcate into the next generation of journalists, and you're going to go hire her, and she's like the antithesis of this philosophy. So it creates this battleground of ideas, which I'm fine with. And again, I I did not go to UNC Chapel Hill. I didn't go to their journalism school. So I really don't care about any of this or the, you know, the name on it or the donors or whatever. I really don't. I have no dog in this fight, I should say. Uh, It does raise interesting questions about, you know, how do you uh, practice journalism and the like. But what rubs me so raw on this is the entitlement. The entitlement and the and the pressure campaign that is born out of it. it. It, I understand that she used to work in. She worked at the Raleigh News and Observer, I believe, and uh, so there's this "she's one of us" kind of thing going on with the media here. I get that, um, but the the lack of skepticism or questioning of any of her allies or her on any of this stuff, the lack of inclusion uh, of the criticism against her and the 1619 Project, legitimate, by the way, legitimate criticism about what she wrote, the central thesis of her uh, of her project, the way she has behaved in the public square when challenged, like none of this stuff ever makes it into the discourse. It's just she should get it. Shut up. And and that's I, I I admit I don't react well to that. Uh, unlike general equipment rental, I react very well. In fact, I went there and I bought a uh, a weed eater. Well, I need a weed eater for the for the new home, and uh, we're hoping to be in there soon in a couple of days. And then I will give you a full report on how the weed eater runs. It's a Husqvarna, so it's I mean it's going to be fantastic. It's battery powered. It's lightweight. It's super cool looking, and um, I mean, it looks really nice too. It doesn't have any grass on it yet, <laughs> so like it's all it's like pristine, uh, and so I love it. And so yeah, you can get outdoor power equipment, Husqvarna and Honda, at uh, General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. They're at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. They are family owned and operated, have been for three generations. Great folks over there, uh, great um, customer service, 
And because they are your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider, they know all of the differences between the brands and the series and year-to-year changes and improvements and stuff, so they can help with, uh, help you decide which one to pick. Uh, like, there were a couple different models that I was looking at for the weed eater, and some were, like, more high power, uh, and I didn't need that, because it's going to be a really small yard, so I don't need something to, you know, do the back 40. <laughs> I don't need that. I got, like, 40 feet, maybe. Uh, that's about it. So they can help you pick the right tool for you. Also, obviously, as the name uh, indicates, rental equipment. If you're trying to do a massive project, but you don't want to buy a massive piece of equipment or machinery, you can rent it from General Equipment Rental. Get 10% off your first rental. Go to generalrents.com. That is their website, generalrents.com. And think outside your toolbox. So back to the McClatchy story on the Nicole Hannah-Jones vote, which, again, she she has now been offered tenure, but she's not sure she's going to take it. Yeah, that's the latest. Uh, like this, like these people are just the drama with like this whole story. Everybody involved, like this whole drama play is just exhausting. It's annoying to me. It's annoying. Like, like it's so performative. So much of this stuff is performative in today's politics. Um, after the vote, here's what she says. <clears throat> I want to acknowledge the tremendous outpouring of support I have received from students, faculty, colleagues, and the general public over the last month, including the young people today who showed up at the Board of Trustees meeting, putting themselves at physical risk. Yeah, I'm going to get to that in a minute. She says, I am honored and grateful for and inspired by you all. I know that this vote would not have occurred without you. Today's outcome... And the actions of the past month are about more than just me. This fight is about ensuring the journalistic and academic freedom of black writers, researchers, teachers, and students. I mean, she's going to keep all of the money they give her, but it's about all of us. We must ensure that our work is protected and able to proceed free from the risk of repercussions, and we are not there yet. Now, mind you, their work is going to be targeting other people and the work that they're doing, so they suffer uh, repercussions. While uh, folks who are engaged in the social justice work, uh, they remain protected and inoculated from any repercussions. That's the deal. These last weeks have been very challenging and difficult, and I need to take some time to process all that has occurred and determine what is the best way forward. Really? You didn't think you were going to get the... Did you not game this out? Seriously. Why would you not game this out? You're looking at these potential... I mean, because look, how, how would this have gone? Right. The board of trustees goes in there and they vote. They would have said either, yes, we're going to give her tenure or no, we're not going to give her tenure. Did you not did you not plan that out? Did you not game that out? Like, okay, well, if they offer it to me, this is what I will do. (laughs) Why would you not do that? Why would you not have an answer ready to go? But now there's like, oh, I hope she comes. I hope she comes. Oh, thank you. You accepted the one hundred eighty thousand dollar a year lifetime appointment. Please take our money. (laughs) Again, I got to point this out, not taxpayer money, not taxpayer money. Um, So back to the students that showed up and I watched the videos. I've watched them several times. These handheld, you know, camera phone videos that uh, were shot of uh, what occurred when they um, when they attempted to vote. So here you have, I don't know, there's probably maybe like 15, 20 students. I think, roughly, they were all piled into uh, the room. So it was a big, uh, think of like a, uh, uh, think of like a big banquet uh, hall kind of room at like a hotel, right? The big room, it's got like all these tables lined up in a big U. So it's this massive 
uh, area that's kind of in the center. And then they got, and so that, that's the size of the room. It's a very large room. And the students were in there. Well, this is a personnel matter. And when voting on any personnel matter, the board of trustees goes into closed session to discuss, you know, personnel matters. It's one of the protected reasons that elected bodies or appointed bodies can go into closed session. And so they moved to go into closed session. Now, the kids, these students, these UNC, I assume they're all UNC students, they don't know this. They are unaware of the rules that they are demanding be applied, which I find to be hysterically ironic (laughs) that these people are out there like, we demand you treat her the same as everyone else and follow your rules and give her this tenure and do it by this process. And they don't even know the process. They don't even know that this is a close. I mean, this is really fundamental stuff, too. This is like a basic understanding of governance and Robert's rules and that sort of thing. And so all the kids are in there and they're like, we're not leaving. We demand a vote. And how can you have the vote in the closed session when the public won't leave? This then prompts the UNC, the uh, the campus police officers. They say you got to leave. You can see where this is going, right? <laughs> they they say you have to leave. The kids refuse. They're going to stand there. So now what do you do? So if you're the cops, what do you do? You just don't hold the meeting? Well, the, the, the kids are demanding you hold the meeting. And we got to do what the kids want. That's what this is all about, right? That's what I have learned over the last two years now is that whatever the children want, the children get. There's no, there are no adults anywhere around that are to say, no, you are ignorant, child. You need to step aside. Nobody says that anymore. The children know everything, even when they don't know anything at all. See, they have the power of the righteous indignation on their side. It doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if they're correct. It doesn't matter if they're ignorant of things. None of that matters. They feel they're right. So you need to surrender to them. Well, somebody did not tell the cops this because the cops then said, okay, time to leave. And they started trying to herd the kids out of the room. This is a closed session. One of the cops actually says, you want them to vote or not? They got to vote in closed session, but they didn't care. They didn't know. And when they didn't know, they started struggling against the cops. They start wrestling with the cops. You can't make us leave. Tell me, who has the power in that situation? I understand the cops would eventually, if they wanted to arrest these kids, they could. But when you have a group of kids, a bunch of college kids, screaming, F you, pig, you're going to lose your job. That's what they're chanting at them. You're going to lose your job. This is this was a refrain during the Black Lives Matter protest. They started chanting this at the cops. Um, who has the power in that dynamic? It ain't the cops guys. It ain't the cops. And by the way, when you go looking for a fight, as these kids obviously did, when you go looking for a confrontation and then you find one, you're not the victim. You're not the victim, kid. Sorry. And yes, I'm using kids and children for a reason because that's the way they acted, like petulant, spoiled children. They demanded. And here's the thing. They got what they wanted for whatever good that's going to do them. I don't know. Were these old journalism students? (laughs) I don't even know. I don't think so. Um, If so, that's kind of terrifying if this is what they believe the role of journalists uh, is to be in the future. Um, But they, they refuse to leave the closed session so it can start 
to hold the vote that they demand be held, which then turned out the way they demanded it turn out. And now they're like, how dare you put your hands on me, physically remove me and all this like, so, okay, so you should just be able to stay in a closed session meeting. So there are no more rules if you don't want to follow them or you don't know what they are, even when people told you what they are. The UNC student body president, Lamar Richards, he worked to defuse the situation by telling protesters that he had voted for a closed meeting, which is common for personnel discussions. It's not just common. It's required. Um, He sent out a tweet that says, quote, from me, I wanted to be clear that is legal and standard procedure to discuss tenure and personnel matters in closed session. As I have said, we want Nicole Hannah-Jones's candidacy to be discussed in the same manner. Nothing different. No room for any contest or dissent. Then after this video uh, got you know amplified and, and uh, pushed out by uh, local media uh, and national media that saw it, they were like, oh my gosh, it's the Edmund Pettus Bridge all over again. And they pushed all of this stuff out and were like, how dare you? So then Nicole Hannah-Jones tweets out, if anyone has the names and contact for the sisters physically shoved out of this room, please DM me. Please send them to her. So she's going to reach out and thank them, I guess. Um, Then she says it should have been communicated how this meeting would go, that tenure proceedings are always held in closed session and an attempt made to de-escalate. Notice where she's putting all the burden, right? The burden of responsibility always goes one direction and it's never on her or her supporters, right? They were the ignorant ones. They did not know that this this, this is the process. They were demanding a process occur, but did not know what the process was. And there's zero criticism of them in any of this. All the media criticism, her criticism, it's all directed at the cops for trying to move them out of the room. How dare you try to move them out of the room? And then when the kids resisted, how dare you try to continue to move them out when they resisted? So that's the standard. That's the standard. You are allowed to resist lawful orders. You are allowed to trespass. You are allowed to violate a closed session law. You are allowed to wrestle with cops with zero repercussions. This is all the new standard now. I don't know if it applies to everybody, because one thing I have learned about the anti-racist woke mob is that the rules apply uh, in certain situations that benefit them and in other situations uh, that do not benefit others. Instead, she says, black students were shoved and punched because they were confused about the process. This is not right. Okay, they were not shoved and punched because they were confused. They were shoved. I didn't see any evidence of the punch. I watched it like four times where this this woman says this a student says that she got punched. I see a struggle going on. People, the cops are pushing them. They're trying to close the doors and the kids are holding the doors, not letting the doors to be closed. So I don't know, maybe somebody hit her in the face during that scuffle, but there was no rearing back, hauling off and punching a kid in the face. That that did not happen. Not according to the video that I saw. Maybe some other angle comes out, but that wasn't the video that I saw. So no, they were they were shoved out of the room because they were resisting, because they refused to vacate based on a lawful order. They were told, you cannot be here. They said, we don't want to follow your rule because we are ignorant about the rules and then they refuse to be moved and so the cops try to move them out of the room 
I guess the better alternative would have been what? Because by the way, it's not like they were just standing there. They were chanting. They were screaming and yelling and all this other stuff. So anybody that tries to tell them anything, as the cop did, they can't hear it. So now you're willfully ignorant. Now you're refusing to be educated at an academy of higher learning, of course. The irony, again, not lost on me. Now, uh, here's irony. People pay a little bit of money. They get some... Uh, they get some Chuck in a truck. They get some Tommy tank top that shows up and says, Hey, I can fix your roof. And they're like, all right, let me take advantage of that. And you pay this guy a couple hundred bucks. He goes up on your roof. You have no idea whether he, you know, fixed a problem or made it worse. He then takes off. You never see or hear from him again. And the problem doesn't get fixed. So then they call Balkan roofing that will do it right. The first time they go back and repair the repairman's work. So many times they are called in to fix what other people did to a roof, okay? Which is why they have a fantastic repair team. <laughs> so give them a call at 628-0390. By the way, um, the cost of materials going through the roof, no pun intended. Okay, but maybe a little bit. Uh, it's you know, You've seen what's uh, happening with construction materials and all of this. They have been trying to absorb these costs, but there's only so much that they can do. So if you are thinking about getting a roof, think about doing it sooner rather than later because uh, obviously the longer you wait, the more expensive it's going to be, okay? But you can get a roof for as low as $69 a month. They will give you a free estimate. They'll just come on out. They'll take a look at the roof, see if it needs any work. And sometimes it doesn't, by the way. Sometimes people think that, like one of the um, common complaints you'll see is that people think that it's... um that the roof is uh, is in trouble because there, it maybe like looks wavy, you know, in the heat. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a structural problem with the roof. It could just like some roofs, like truss systems, are designed to do that. So uh, they'll tell you that. They'll let you know that. Uh, maybe sometimes it's just you know a couple of shingles out of whack, and they just like realign them, hammer them down, and they're done, and that's it. But if you do need a roof, you can get financing through Balkan, sixty nine bucks a month. Give them a call at six two eight zero three ninety. That's six two eight zero three ninety. BalkanRoofing.com. I got a message from a listener, UNC alum, uh, the other day uh, on this topic, and uh, this person said, uh, look, only 22% of instructional positions at this R1 level, uh, this top tier research university level are tenured. 22% of the positions are tenured. Nicole Hannah-Jones does not have a doctorate degree. She has never uh, never taught a college course, and... Uh, This person pointed out that UNC's white male law school dean, Martin Brinkley, holds a Juris Doctorate, has taught at Carolina for five years, and was just denied tenure. So this does happen. But now apparently the standard is that certain people can never be denied tenure, in fact, must be hired with tenure immediately. And it ignores all of this ignores the very real problems that nicole hannah jones presents she comes with a lot of baggage and for a university and i understand like the people in the university for the folks that are part of the long march through that institution right they're all on the same page on this stuff this is why like to them they can't possibly think of a reason why anybody would object to this they're all in this is fantastic we can get Nicole Hannah-Jones here, the 1619 Project creator. We can get her on staff. Oh, my gosh, this is fantastic. There's no downside. It's win-win for everybody. That's what they think. And when presented with any other alternative explanation, it doesn't matter. It's all just racism. That's the reason. It couldn't be, oh, I don't know, her racism that she has expressed. 
Do you think students, I don't know, students of a particular racial persuasion might have a bit of a problem sitting in a classroom being taught by a person who called them no different than Hitler or barbaric devils? That might, I don't know. I think that might be a problem. I think if a white teacher said something like that about any other racial or ethnic group, I think probably people would have an issue with that. This was from a story by Jordan Davidson at The Federalist back in 2020, last June. In an indication of what was to come, the founder of the New York Times 1619 Project penned a lengthy racist screed attacking all white people in 1995. Nicole Hannah-Jones, the lead essayist on the New York Times Magazine 1619 Project, wrote a letter to the editor in Notre Dame's The Observer, stating that, quote, the white race is the biggest murderer, rapist, pillager, and thief of the modern world. So I'd be curious, does she still believe that? She tried to claim that the actions of European settlers and explorers like Christopher Columbus were, quote, acts of the uh, acts of devils and likened them to Hitler. She said, quote, the whites lasting monument was the destruction and enslavement of two races of people. She claims um, Africans arrived in North America long before Europeans, but that unlike Europeans, Africans befriended and traded with the indigenous people. She claims pyramids in Mexico are a symbol of that friendship. She then moves to the present and argues that white people today still take advantage of other people. Quote, the descendants of these savage people pump drugs and guns into the black community, pack black people into the squalor of segregated urban ghettos and continue to be bloodsuckers in our community. The New York Times did not respond for uh, uh, to a request for comment on any of that. So maybe uh, some of the objections could be about uh, her kind of racisty writings in the past or how about this it could be her shoddy work right could be uh that uh, like as leslie harris a northwestern university historian who actually helped to fact check the 1619 project yeah um she says that she objected to some of the things that they put in there and they left them in anyway Quote, far from being fought to preserve slavery, the Revolutionary War became a primary disruptor of slavery in the North American colonies. This was because this was the central premise uh, of the 1619 Project, saying that, you know, the founding of America should really be uh, pinned to 1619, which was when the first uh, African slaves were brought to America, right? That's the central thesis here. And that the Revolutionary War, she argues, Nicole Hannah-Jones argues, was uh, fought to preserve slavery. And the historians, like from all over the place, liberal historians, they're like, that's not accurate. Lord Dunmore's proclamation, a British military strategy designed to unsettle the southern colonies by inviting enslaved people to flee to the uh, to British lines, actually propelled hundreds of enslaved people off plantations and turned some southerners to the patriot side. It also led most of the 13 colonies to arm and employ free and enslaved black people with the promise of freedom to those who served in their armies. While neither side fully kept its promises, thousands of enslaved people were freed as a result of these policies. The historian Leslie Harris says, despite my advice, the Times published the incorrect statement about the American Revolution anyway in Hannah Jones's uh, introductory essay. In addition, 
The paper's characterizations of slavery in early America reflected laws and practices more common in the antebellum era than in colonial times, and it did not accurately illustrate the varied experiences of the first generation of enslaved people that arrived in Virginia in 1619. That's the New York Times' own fact checker telling them that on three major points upon which the entire project rests, there are inaccuracies. So that might be it, right? It could be her racisty writings, could have been the shoddy work, could also be her dishonesty, right? That might be a problem. Um, John Sexton writing at Hot Air. This story isn't really that complicated except for the fact that the person at the center of it 1619 Project author Nicole Hannah-Jones has been doing her best to gaslight everybody about it. This was again from September 2020. Quote, if you cut through that intentional fog of misdirection and deleted tweets, what you're left with is a clumsy effort to obfuscate what was the most oft-used summary of the entire project by the author herself. The idea that 1619, not 1776, should be considered America's, quote, true founding. And those exact words were used in a preface to the project when it was published by the New York Times. But at some point, the Times removed that language. Stealth edits, this is what these are called, stealth edits, where you make corrections, you remove things in stories online, but don't tell anybody that you removed them. You don't put like a note there. Hannah Jones herself recently complained that right-wing critics have done a great job at framing those words as if, as if they were part of her project, when according to her, they never were. That is a lie. They were part of the project. She actually has said them. It matters because Hannah Jones is claiming uh, simply not anywhere close to a fair amount of how that claim featured in the rollout of the 1619 Project. Simply put, the Pulitzer Prize winning author is lying when she says this appeared once in promotional materials and was never really part of the project. On the contrary, this same phrase actually appeared over and over and over from her own mouth when she was describing the project in various interviews. She's basically claiming that her critics are fabricating evidence against her instead of admitting that this came directly and repeatedly from her. Is that who you want teaching journalism students? Is that okay? Is that a fair question to raise? Nobody is talking about it. We all just assume, right? Well, she got this Pulitzer. Oh, so what? So the fact that she's lying about what she's been saying the project was that got her the Pulitzer, that doesn't matter in any of this? Her honesty doesn't matter? She's now claiming this is confusion over literal versus symbolic meaning. Her critics never took her to mean that 1619 was the literal legal founding. This was always a debate over, where, uh, over which date better represents America, the arrival of slaves or the Declaration of Independence. That was always the argument and the claim that 1619 was our true founding. It matters because it's very much a claim that 1619 matters more than 1776. Not as a legal date, but as the most important part of the nation's history. The fact that she has made this exact claim multiple times demonstrates that even if those words never appeared in her essay, which they did, she considered them a fair and useful way to sum up the gist of the project. She said it. The question is whether 1619 really does represent the true founding or not, and she doesn't seem prepared to acknowledge or debate with critics. When... Um, 
her colleague, what's his name, Brett Stevens, I think, at the New York Times, wrote a piece attacking the 1619 Project in his own newspaper, right? He's a New York Times columnist attacking the New York Times Project, the 1619 Project, citing all of these problems with it. Nicole Hannah-Jones went internally to try to shut down that kind of criticism. Again, is that the kind of person you want tenured to be teaching journalism? And apparently, UNC says, yes, this is the person we want. Now, if you are trying to buy or sell a home, here's the person you want. It is Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team. Uh, their phone number is 828-333-4483. That's 828-333-4483. Their website is mountainhomehunt.com, and they are the only official Homes for Heroes real estate agents in Asheville. This is a national program that uh, picks, you know, one realtor per marketplace uh, to be affiliated with the program. And what does it mean for you? Well, you get 25% back buying or selling, 25% back from the Realtor Commission. Uh, if you are a police officer, firefighter, a healthcare professional, an educator, or a member of the military, so veteran, active duty, retiree, whatever, uh, if you're in any of those five professions, you get 25% back buying or selling a home. She's given back about $800,000 so far to folks in those fields. So give her a call at 828-333-4483, buying or selling, mountainhomehunt.com. Give her a call, tell her I sent you, and then start packing. Uh, All righty, so the White House Press Secretary, Jen Psaki, she engaged in another debate with Fox News's White House correspondent, Peter Ducey over whether Republicans defunded the police. This is, this is now take two. So they're doubling down on this ridiculous line of attack that it's the, really the Republicans who want to defund the police. They're the anti-cop party, really. And she suggested in this latest round uh, that, quote, actions speak louder than words. So remember, uh, the first round that they had, this was earlier in the week. Something one of the advisors said this weekend, Cedric Richmond, he said, Republicans defunded the police by not supporting the American Rescue Plan. But how is it that that is an argument uh, to be made when the president never mentioned needing money for police to stop a crime wave when he was selling the American Rescue Plan? Well, the president did mention that the American Rescue Plan, the state and local funding, something that was supported by the president, a lot of Democrats who supported and voted for the bill, could help ensure uh, local cops were kept on the beat in communities across the country. As you know, didn't receive a single Republican vote. That funding has been used to keep cops on the beat. But at the time, that was sold as uh, these local police departments might have a pandemic-related budget shortfall, not we need to keep cops on the beat because there's a crime wave. Uh, I think that any local uh, department would argue that keeping cops on the beat to keep communities safe when they had to, because of budget shortfalls, fire police is is something that helped them address yeah. crime in their local communities. So local communities. The White House's argument was the American Rescue Plan is going to be $1,400 checks. It's going to be vaccines, vaccinators. Uh, we're, it's going to put us on the path to beating the virus. Not. It did those things as well. It was a pretty good bill and piece of legislation. Okay, so that was, the, and remember, the left was like, oh my gosh, it's a sake bomb. She's fantastic. We love you, Jen. They loved this interaction. They, sh- they, they thought that she, you know, dropped the hammer on Ducey. Here is now round two. That's explicitly saying 
they want to defund the police. We've got Congresswoman Cori Bush, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar. Are there any examples of Republican members of Congress saying they want to defund the police? I think most people would argue that actions are more important than words, wouldn't you say? Uh, well, to that point, uh, to your point there, at the time no. of the vote on the American Rescue Plan, you had the Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, and he said he just didn't like it because he thought it was a classic example of big government Democratic overreach in the name of COVID relief. And then Kevin McCarthy said he thought Democrats were using coronavirus as an excuse to justify funding pet projects. True. Well, where is the, here the we're going to vote against here, this because we want to defund the police? Again, I think actions speak louder than words, Peter. So if you oppose funding for the COPS program, <laughs> something that was dramatically cut by the prior administration and many Republicans supported, and then you vote against a bill that has funding for the COPS program, we can let other people evaluate what that means. It doesn't require them to speak to it or to shout it out. Their actions speak for themselves. Right. So Go they ahead. don't. Uh, two questions. Right. So they don't have to say defund the police when they vote against a $1.9 trillion package, only $350 billion of which went to local cities and states and not earmarked for cops either, by the way. That's what they're talking about. This was $350 billion in a nearly $2 trillion package. And this was supposed to go for local jurisdictions to fill budget gaps. That was the idea. And you look at North Carolina, by the way, and North Carolina has so much extra money because of all of this. Like they're trying to figure out ways to spend it on things. They're trying, like they're trying, they're searching, like, what can we use this for? How, you know, one-time projects, what can we do with all this extra money? That's happening all over the place. Um, at the time, a year ago, when they were debating this, there was discussion that some cities uh, that had budget shortfalls. And I think it was Senator uh, Cassidy out of uh, Louisiana. He was like, you know, look, you know, this can be used to fund the police. And now, by the way, the like the left and the media. But I repeat myself, they're all seizing on that one quote uh, from Cassidy. I have it here in the NBC story. Um, yeah, here it is. Bill Cassidy. Um he said, this is about taking care of first responders. Um, he eventually voted against the Biden package. He said, I don't want to be the guy defunding the police, right? So he was trying to get uh, support for the local city and state uh, portion of this from Republicans. But because it ends up in a $2 trillion spending package of all sorts of other garbage, Republicans vote against it. And by the way, there was an opportunity, because think about this, if the Democrats had simply said, here is a bill that funds budget gaps for police departments and fire departments all around America, do you think Republicans vote for that? <laughs> of course they do. Of course they do, right? But when you stuff it in a $2 trillion package and you don't actually tie the money to police funding, now cities and, and states can use it for anything that they want, not necessarily for police and fire. This is uh, specifically police in this case. Um, this was about local money, part of a larger bill. This is, by the way, the exact same argument that North Carolina Republicans use when they say Governor Cooper vetoed teacher pay raises, and the left hates it, <laughs> right? So they, they, they're all they're all using this same sort of... Um, uh, legislative uh trick that's what it is it's not really even a trick it's like we're going to put stuff in here that you don't like and so you're either going to have to vote against the whole thing or you're going to have to vote for it and hold your nose on the stuff you don't like this is common tactic we all know this right just like we all know that if you need real u.s military surplus you go to old grouch's military surplus in downtown clyde right he's your source for real 
U.S. military surplus. Everything from ammo cans to MREs to backpacks and camp stoves and rain ponchos and gun accessories. He also has the uh, first responder kit, which is, uh, it's like this big kit. It's orange. It's got the reflective tape on it, so it's really easy to spot. It's got more than 350 components inside each kit to handle all kinds of medical events from minor scrapes to major cuts or broken bones and these kits are made in north carolina uh and if you own a business you need to have one of these for your employees and customers if you uh part of a scout group a sports team school group whatever like you need to have one of these to be ready and by the way the nice thing about this kit is that there's actually room for other items to get added a lot of times you buy these kits and they're like they're packed so perfectly if you open them up and take you know a band-aid out they never fit back the same way again. It's like all right, trying to get it back into the bag. It never works. Well, these kits have room for expansion, so you can add stuff if you want. Go to oldgrouch.com, check it out, uh, or drop on by the store, downtown Clyde, exit 27 off I-40. For three decades, Old Grouch's military surplus across the street from the anti-aircraft gun on Main Street and 24-7 at oldgrouch.com. House Republicans who opposed the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill continue to see the benefits in their communities, reports NBC News. And Democrats want to remind voters that they are getting federal aid despite and not because of their elected officials. As violent crime incidents have increased ahead of the summer, Democrats and Republicans are already trading accusations of responsibility for thinning police ranks. See, this to me... Most of the cops that have been leaving are leaving because of their own choices, because of the climate that has been created by the left in America around policing. Okay, the Ferguson effect and now the Minneapolis effect. This is not because of all budget cuts and stuff. This is because of the climate and the attacks on law enforcement that have come from the left. As part of that effort, Democrats are highlighting communities in at least 10 districts where Republicans voted against the American Rescue Plan but now they've gotten money and without that money the police departments would have suffered right so they're trying to make this connection i i I do need to point this out it's ridiculous this is a laughable silly ridiculous argument the democrats think you are stupid the polling is terrible for them on this and they need to reposition they need to uh, claw back some of these percentage points among black and hispanic voters who are not happy with the defund the police effort that has made their neighborhoods much less safe that's what's going on here right we all know it um Nancy Pelosi said in a statement or her uh, deputy comms director said House Republicans voted against the funding their uh, voted against the funding that their communities needed to keep police officers on the beat. If Republicans are looking for politicians who have voted to defund police departments, they only need to look in the mirror. This is another tactic, by the way, uh, that so you've got city and and uh, state budgets, right, that were hurt because of the pandemic. And so um, they, they were they, they were short on revenue. Right. This is a common tactic in all budget fights, which is that the elected leadership will dangle in front of usually voters when they're trying to get a budget approved and it includes a tax increase and they're trying to sell that tax increase to voters. They will dangle in front of the voters like, well, do you want this new fire department? Well, you know, if you don't approve this tax hike, well, we're going to have to cut police. School districts do it with after school activities and the most popular ones like we're going to have to get rid of, you know, bus service and football like those are the first things that they always go to cut. Right. Because they know that's the stuff that people want, because that's a core service of government. They never say, well, you know what, we're going to have to dial back on parks and rec. 
Right? They never say, well, we got to, you know, maybe cut our own pay or something like that. No, no, no. It's always the stuff that's popular. That's what that's that's the tactic that is at play here as well, because these cities and states, they could have cut their budgets and left police harmless, but they were under pressure from the left to defund the police. We all know this. Democrats think you're stupid. They think you didn't see the last year of protests of the the blatant calls for defunding the police. And when we were like, wait, defund the police? And they're like, yeah. And then when like some Democrats were like, well, wait a minute, I'm not not so sure about that. They're like, well, it's just a slogan, maybe. And then the, the activists were like, no, it's not a slogan. You have a member of Congress, Cori Bush, a Black Lives Matter activist. Uh, she ran on this platform of defunding the police. And I know that like Asheville, look, Asheville is a perfect example of it. They, they have an all Democrat city council. What, what, the Republicans were the reason why they're moving to defund the police and why we've lost a third of the police force in Asheville? That's the Republicans' fault? Republicans who don't even run for office anymore in Asheville because you can't get elected in Asheville. It is a complete Democrat stronghold. And they're looking to defund the police. But that's the Republicans' fault. Please. The cops are quitting because they get no support from the city council and the uh, the population in this city that's mostly left-leaning, they hate the cops. That's why they're leaving. And they're taking jobs in surrounding areas where people welcome them, where, dare I say, conservatives, Republicans welcome them. And the worst part is that the people that are going to be most hurt are the very people that the left claims to champion and try to protect. It's it. It is gaslighting. Okay. now I'm not gaslighting you when I tell you that Mattress Man Stores is the place to go for your next mattress. Pick up a Biltmore mattress and you'll get a free box spring part of their July the 4th sale. Go to mattressmanstores.com. You can actually click on the financing link and get pre-approved before you even walk into any other stores. Synchrony Finance offers zero down and zero interest for up to 72 months for qualified applicants. They have tons of other flexible financing options. They have five-star local delivery service. They have nationwide shipping. They have a 120-day comfort guarantee. So experience the difference at Mattress Man, locally owned and operated, four stores in Asheville, Hendersonville, and Arden. Mattressmanstores.com. Buy local and sleep better. I actually got a message from a listener, Jim, who said, hey, remember this whole defund the police pivot that Democrats tried? Uh, Roy Cooper actually tried it in a debate with Dan Forrest in 2020. And I was like, you're right. I went back. I pulled the audio. Our communities are working very hard to keep themselves safe, to start their economies going. This is Cooper. Dan Forrest right now is doing what no leader should do. He got caught running an ad using fake riot footage from Washington and New York, pretending it was Asheville hurting their economy. That is unacceptable. Dan Forrest is using this issue for fear and division, and he thinks that's going to win this race for him, and I think he's wrong. Is there systemic racism, Mr. Forrest? Governor, very clearly didn't answer that question. No, I don't think there's systemic racism. There's racism. We should reject it at every single turn. That's what we should do in America. But the governor said that we should also reject uh, violence and destruction and looting. 
when he stood by, he was, he's locked in his mansion, uh, surrounded by a wall, surrounded by a fence, surrounded by police cars and surrounded by police officers and riot gear. And just two blocks away, downtown Raleigh was being destroyed. Downtown Charlotte was being destroyed. Downtown Asheville was being destroyed. And the governor didn't do anything about that. He had the ability to call out the National Guard and send them in to stop it. When I'm governor, I will never allow an angry mob to destroy one of our cities. And on that Asheville footage, there's Asheville footage. The news stations in Asheville wouldn't let us use it. And we had to go get other footage. That's why we couldn't use it. But it's out there, and everybody knows it. The people in these cities know. They've been dealing with the destruction. I was eating at a restaurant in downtown Raleigh the other day that's still all boarded up because they're scared to take the plywood down because they're scared the governor won't protect them when the riots come back to town. When I'm governor, you won't have to worry about that. 30 seconds, Mr. Cooper. Dan likes to ignore my record as the top law enforcement officer of the state and attorney general for 16 years. As governor, I signed a bill to double the penalties for anybody who would attack a law enforcement officer with a gun. We've got to make sure what? that we have strong law enforcement in North Carolina. But let's don't forget that it was Dan Forrest supporters who were out in the middle of the street in Raleigh burning masks <laughs> and calling police officers pigs. Yet Dan Forrest said and did nothing about that. Mr. Forrest? That's the most bizarre comment I have ever heard. My supporters in the streets calling police officers pigs? Those aren't my supporters, Governor. Those are your supporters, the ones you walked through right before they rioted and looted downtown Raleigh while you had that little mask dangling around your ear, not around your face, protecting you or the people around you. Right. That's what we're dealing with right now. That is why the vast majority, almost every single law enforcement organization in North Carolina has endorsed Dan Forrest because they know the governor does not support law enforcement, and he didn't for his 16 years as attorney general either. Right. And uh, so that was the first example of Democrats trying to flip this script that somehow or another them refusing to protect downtown areas from rampaging Black Lives Matter and Antifa mobs, their base, their leftist base that rampaged through cities in the name of justice. And Democrats were too afraid to confront them over that because they saw it as a way to hurt Donald Trump. What else am I to what else am I to uh, divine from that? That you were afraid of them? You're afraid of your own electoral loss? Is that it? I don't know which is better, actually. Yeah, I mean, maybe again, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt that you thought Donald Trump was this existential threat that you had to let your own cities burn in order to get him out of office. That's the charitable assumption. That is a wrap for the episode. Thanks so much for listening. I do appreciate it. Remember, subscribe at thepetecalendarshow.com. I'll talk with you later, and uh, don't break anything while I'm gone.